Well, good morning, friends. If we haven't met, my name is Amy, and I'm so glad to welcome you to worship this morning as well. Today, as Micah mentioned, we are wrapping up a sermon series that we have called Prisoners of Hope. In the days of the Old Testament prophet, Zechariah, God brought the Jewish people back from exile to Jerusalem and instructed them to rebuild the temple. And their work was long and difficult. Their motivation waned, they lost hope, and ultimately they gave up. And so God spoke messages through Zechariah that would infuse the people with hope in who God is and in what God can do. So we've looked at how we can have hope in God's word, hope in God's intervention, and hope in God's mercy. And so today, we will finish by looking at how we can have hope in God's power. Now, have you ever heard of an area called the Cape of Good Hope? It wasn't always called that. In the Middle Ages, the passage from Europe around the tip of Africa to India seemed impossible. They used to wonder whether there could ever be a route around that tip of Africa to this land of rich spices. And many had tried and all had failed. In fact, the area came to be known as the Cape of Storms. Then an explorer called Vasco da Gama decided he was going to try again. Now, like everyone else before him, he got caught in the storms. But this time, he was swept way westward, well out of his path and out of sight of land. Now, it wasn't the way he intended to go, and he thought it was going to end in disaster. But he ended up in a strong current that drove him right around the tip of Africa. Now, this proved that to use that treacherous way wasn't inevitably impossible. The obstacle that had seemed insurmountable had now been overcome. And so the Cape of Storms eventually became known as the Cape of Good Hope. Now, is there a problem that you're facing where you need that kind of hope and expectation that God will make a way? Are you feeling discouraged or stuck in any way? Today, we are going to learn from Zechariah 4 how we can have hope in God's power. So listen as I read Zechariah 4, verses 1 through 14. Hear the word of the Lord. Then the angel who talked with me returned and woke me up like someone awakened from sleep. He asked me, what do you see? I answered, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lamps on it with seven channels to the lamps. Also, there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. I asked the angel who talked with me, what are these, my lord? He answered, do you not know what these are? No, my lord, I replied. So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. What are you, mighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground. Then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of God bless it, God bless it. Then the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Who dares despise the day of small things? Since the seven eyes of the Lord that range throughout the earth will rejoice when they see the chosen capstone in the hand of Zerubbabel. Then I asked the angel, what are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? Again, I asked him, what are these two olive branches beside the two gold pipes that pour out golden oil? He replied, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I said. So he said, these are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. May God bless the reading of this word. 
Now, I know what many of you are thinking. This is kind of weird. Some scripture passages are pretty straightforward. The answers are the explanations or the meaning may seem pretty obvious to us. I don't know what Zechariah ate last night or what kind of dream he was having, but this is some weird stuff. We can acknowledge that, right? And I agree. But you know, when the prophet himself has to ask three times what the uh, message means, we're not in bad company. So here's one thing for us to note. Beware of anyone who tries to give you answers with absolute certainty to really difficult passages of Scripture. There are some passages in Scripture that don't have easy or simplistic answers. And I think this is by design. Perhaps God wants us to think long and hard about what the passage meant to its original audience as well as what it might mean to us today. So let's look at the historical context to learn what we can. We'll start with the beginning and the end of this passage, and then we're going to come back and tackle the middle. So the angel has been given Zechariah a series of visions. And as this one begins, Zechariah says it's like waking from sleep. Oftentimes in scripture, this metaphor of waking from sleep conveys some, something of importance or something worthy of focused attention. Now the vision itself is of an ornate and special lampstand. If you're a fan of Old Testament trivia, you may remember other lampstands from Israel's past. When Moses and God's people were wandering in the wilderness between Egypt and the Promised Land, and they carried a portable tent of worship called the Tabernacle, Moses had a lampstand similar to this one. His was a golden menorah with seven branches that was kept constantly burning as a sign of God's presence. And then when God's people settled in the Promised Land and King Solomon built the temple, he had 10 such lamps, five on each side of the holy place. But this lamp in Zechariah's vision has a distinctive design that's different from those before it. The arrangement of the Hebrew words in verse two is difficult. So depending on how you interpret it or which Bible translation you're reading, this lamp either had seven or maybe 49 wicks to it. Instead of the traditional menorah shape, this one was fed by a bowl of olive oil that was supplied by two pipes coming from two olive trees. Now for the meaning. Since the lamp depends on outside resources, I would suggest it cannot represent God because God is not dependent on anyone or anything. And at the end of chapter four, we learned that the two olive branches that feed oil to the lamp are God's anointed servants. So these branches represent Joshua, the high priest, and Zerubbabel, the governor. So then the lampstand itself probably represents the community the people who are involved with the work of rebuilding the temple. And the community bears the light of God's presence with them. Now last week in Zechariah 3, we saw how God brought spiritual restoration to the high priest Joshua and to the people. But now in Zechariah 4, we see that God is still patiently and powerfully working with the people to get them going again in the work of rebuilding the temple. Now I'm sure we can relate there may be times when we feel like things are stuck or they're moving slower than we might wish. We may find ourselves getting discouraged or losing hope. We may even wonder if God truly does have good plans for us. But today's passage gives us good news. And this is our main idea for today. God's spirit fills us with God's power to complete God's work. Now when God calls us to do something, we can trust that God will equip us for the task. 
This is different from the idea that we can do whatever we set our minds to. That's not biblical. But when God calls us to do something, we can trust that God will equip us for the task. Look with me at verse six. Now this is God speaking through the angel, that's the he at the beginning, to Zechariah with a message for, oh here it is, with a message for Zerubbabel, the governor. Now this is the first time that Zerubbabel is mentioned in the book of Zechariah. And so by way of introduction, Zerubbabel is the grandson of Jehoiachin, who's also known as Jeconiah. He was the former king of Judah. And in fact, it's interesting to note that Jeconiah and Zerubbabel are both mentioned in the New Testament genealogies of Jesus. So God's message for Zerubbabel is this, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. God has called the people to do the work of rebuilding the temple. But God says that it won't be done by the collective strength and resources of the group, or even through the capable leadership of Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel the governor. Human resources alone aren't enough. Now as a church, I hope that we will take heed of this message. We cannot put our confidence in the flesh, in the fact that we are respectable people, or that we have a great kids and students ministry, or because we serve our community in so many different ways. These things don't depend on our own charisma, our own creativity, or our own generosity. Without the spirit of God empowering, of us, empowering us, all of these would be a mere charade. They would lack the power to truly change lives and to make a difference in our community and in God's kingdom. See, God is not just giving the people a pep talk, telling them that they can accomplish it if they will just try harder. God is saying that this work will require a deep dependence on and surrender to God's power. So how does God's spirit give us power? Well, first, it gives us the power to overcome hardships. If you're taking notes, the power to overcome hardships. Now, this passage gives us an inside look at why the work of the temple rebuilding had died off. One reason is that God's people had begun facing obstacles. And one literal obstacle they faced was the giant pile of rubble remaining from the destruction of the previous temple. The Babylonian army had destroyed the temple in 586 BC. 1 Kings 24 tells us that the Babylonian ruler, Nebuchadnezzar, had removed the treasures from the temple and the palace. He'd cut up all of the gold articles that King Solomon had made for the temple. So all the things that they previously used for worship, treasured for generations, all the stones that formed the external construction of that first temple were sitting in this giant pile of debris. Now this would be a significant task to remove. They would have to comb through the debris, salvaging what they could still be used, clearing the way for the new construction. And this would require enormous amounts of physical labor. Now that alone would, make them, would be enough to make them drag their feet. But in addition to this massive physical requirement, think about what this pile of rubble signified to them emotionally. To them, this first temple had an enormous amount of national pride. It was the center of their religious operation, it was built over seven years according to the exact specifics that God had prescribed. And it had taken hundreds of thousands of workers, bringing in cedar from Lebanon and stones from the quarries. It was the work of the country's finest craftsmen, 
Artists who were empowered by God's spirit to design beautiful and richly meaningful elements and artifacts. And 1 Kings 6 gives us an idea of its spiritual significance too. In that book, God promised King Solomon to fulfill all of the promises made to his father, King David, if Solomon and the people would follow God, keeping and obeying God's commands. God promised to live among the Israelites and not abandon his people. But the people, as we know, did not follow God faithfully. They lived out of their own self-interests, choosing greed and pride and selfishness and even idolatry over the ways of God. And the result was this huge pile of rubble in front of them, a physical reminder of a spiritual disaster. Now, in the face of such physical, emotional, and spiritual hardship, verse 7 comes as really good news. God says, what are you, mighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground. Then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of God bless it, God bless it. So this mighty mountain, it represents any and every difficulty that they might encounter. And God is promising that this mighty mountain will be overcome. By the power of God's spirit, Zerubbabel and the people who have returned from exile will be able to clear it. They'll rediscover the capstone, that final stone that goes on top of the building to hold the structure together. God's assuring the people that the temple will be completed. And while they weren't able to accomplish it in their own strength, the Spirit's power helps them to overcome these hardships. So I want to ask you, what is the mighty mountain that stands before you today? Is there a physical hardship that's threatening to undo you? Is there an emotional pile of rubble that seems insurmountable? Are you carrying spiritual guilt or disappointment from your past? God offers you the power of his spirit to accomplish what God is calling you to do, to overcome the hardships that you are facing. Now, sometimes we overcome by clearing the mighty mountain, and God removes the hardship that we're facing. The Israelites experienced this when they were escaping slavery in Egypt and God led them straight to the edge of the Red Sea. There was no way around it and the oppressors were closing in. So God literally moved the obstacle from their path, parting the sea into two halves so that they could walk through on dry ground. Obviously, that was not something they could have done in their own power, but with God, all things are possible. Other times, like the Apostle Paul's mysterious thorn in the flesh, God's spirit gives us the power to endure it. We overcome the hardship by God's grace helping us through it. In 1 Corinthians 12, the apostle Paul says this, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. When we're weak, when we are unable to bear our hardships on our own strength, We learn to rely on the power of God. In those times when God doesn't remove the hardship from us, God gives us, helps us to overcome by giving us the strength to thrive in spite of it. And it's through this dependence on God's power that God's strength is perfectly manifest in us. In fact, as I've been thinking about it this week, I think that the way we handle difficulties and suffering is one of the main things that separates us and distinguishes us as followers of Jesus. And one of the main ways that we show to the world the difference that Jesus makes in our lives. 
In Zechariah 4, we see that Zerubbabel and the people recognize the difference that God's power has made for them. They celebrate the grace of God in removing the mighty mountain. And they aren't celebrating their own accomplishments. We don't hear them shouting, Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, or even Israel, Israel. Instead, they're shouting, God bless it, or literally, grace, grace, grace. They're celebrating the grace and blessing of God's power to overcome hardships. Now, hardships aren't the only instance where we need God's power to overcome. Sometimes our difficulty comes not so much in the severity of the problem, but in the longevity. So the next area where we see God's power is in the Spirit's power to overcome weariness. Have you ever faced a task that seemed to never end? I'm one of those types of people that always has a hefty to-do list running in my mind, so that unfortunately, it's never finished. But it brings me great satisfaction to at least be able to check things off of the list. It's that sense of accomplishment that keeps me going to tackle the next task. What I often struggle with is a project that ends up taking much longer than I expected. And instead of that feeling of accomplishment, I feel the weight of it as it just drags on and on. And then I can fall into this downward spiral. The weariness of, of it causes me to procrastinate further, which slows down the progress even more and makes it take that much longer. Anybody else do that? Good for you, I'm glad you don't. But the people in Zerubbabel's community, they were doing exactly that. The temple rebuilding project had dragged on and on, and it seemed to them that the work would never be completed. Weariness had set in, and their motivation slowly left them. But in the middle of that weariness, God gives a message to Zechariah for Zerubbabel. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. See, they had started the work almost 20 years earlier, and they'd even completed a major step by laying the foundation of the temple. But now they were facing burnout, and it would take an act of God to get them going again and motivated. Now hear me clearly, there are a lot of different causes for weariness. And sometimes our weariness is a God-given sign that we are running out of gas and it's time to rest and refuel. God created us as finite creatures with a limited capacity for work. And in fact, among businesses, millennial burnout is an increasing concern. The World Health Organization included the colloquial term burnout in its international classification of diseases, listed as an occupational phenomenon with three symptoms, you're familiar with them, I'm sure, feelings of energy depletion or exhaustion, increased mental distance from one's job or feeling negative towards one's career, and reduced professional productivity. Now, not surprisingly, 94% of Americans say they're stressed at work. 75% of millennials believe that they are more stressed than their parents, and 80% say they're in the midst of a quarter-life crisis. So in the next five to 10 years, we'll see burnout increase and a lot more mental health problems begin to emerge as a consequence. Rest is such an important need that our creator modeled it for us in the creation of the world. For six days, God created the earth, the skies, the plants, animals, humans. And then on the seventh day, God rested. And God has given us the same command for our own good. One day a week, we're to stop, rest, find delight in God's creation and goodness and worship. But in addition to rest, we also need to consider our calling. If we are spending ourselves on behalf of things that truly don't matter, feeling, fueling a desire for simply getting richer, or trying to improve our status, or to impress others, 
then we need to reevaluate our priorities. On the other hand, if we are giving our all toward the good things that God has called us to do, God will always equip us with the power that we need to complete God's work. This is promised over and over again in scripture, and I wanna share two of those with you now. Isaiah 40 says, he gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Now this is not running on the fumes of our exhaustion. This is God-given strength for God-given tasks. Galatians 6 has a similar thing to us. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. See, when God calls us, God gives us the strength to complete the task that God has given us and promises that we will see a harvest. We will see this work bear fruit. Friends, the key is following God's calling and leading in your life. We're not limitless creatures. We're not promised that we can do and achieve anything that we set our minds to. But when God calls us to do something, we can trust that God will equip us for it. When God's behind something, we can trust that God will see it through. When God calls us to something, we can trust that God's spirit will give us the power to overcome weariness and complete the task. So we have the Spirit's power to overcome hardships. We have the Spirit's power to overcome weariness. And lastly, we have the Spirit's power to overcome insignificance. Zerubbabel encountered some resistance in rebuilding the temple, not just from people outside the community, but even from people within. There were some in the community who could still remember the glory of the previous temple. And they felt that this new one would never measure up. In fact, Ezra 3 tells us that many of the priests and Levites and heads of the families who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, even as others were shouting for joy. The first temple had been destroyed 67 years earlier, so it was only the oldest members of the community who would even remember actually seeing it. But sometimes we have a tendency to remember and maybe even exaggerate the glory of past times, and in turn, to downplay or to miss altogether the glory of what God is doing in the present. This is why verse 10 gives us such a direct challenge. Who dares despise the day of small things? Since the seven eyes of the Lord that range throughout the earth will rejoice when they see the chosen capstone in the hand of Zerubbabel. The seven eyes of the Lord may sound weird to us, but to Zerubbabel's community, it would have had two different layers of meaning. One meaning is that the things that people think are small, hidden, or insignificant are fully visible to God. The number seven in the Bible gives us a sense of fullness or being complete. We're reminded that God is all-seeing and all-knowing. God's fully present and actively involved in our day-to-day lives. So God is actively involved in carrying out the work that God has called them to do. And God's presence with them was what made the former temple so glorious in the first place. But the phrase, the eyes that range throughout the earth, had a second layer of meaning too. It was a common practice for kings to hire informants who would operate a little bit like the secret service. They would be the king's eyes and ears, reporting back to the king anything of interest that they had seen or heard. So by phrasing it this way, God is reminding them that not only will God see the work that they're doing and be actively involved in it, 
but also the reputation of what they were doing would have far-reaching impact. In fact, we see this play out in the book of Haggai as well. Haggai is the book that comes just before the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament. Haggai was another prophet who was a contemporary of Zechariah who also encouraged God's people in the rebuilding of the temple. In Haggai 2, God acknowledges what the people are saying about the new temple as they remember the glory days. He says, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when I brought you out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. And even after that, God promises them that what God is doing now, even though it might seem small and insignificant at the moment, is going to blow their minds. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. I love that God is talking about all nations experiencing God's glory. In fact, he promises a couple verses later, the glory of the present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. Friends, Maybe right now you are wishing for the glory days of some previous time in your life. Maybe what God's doing right now in your own personal life seems small and insignificant by comparison. But our own limited vision is paltry compared to the ways that God is working behind the scenes. It may be that you, like the people of Zechariah's day, are in a season of shaping and preparation where God is getting ready to do something that will blow your mind. As a church or as individuals, we can fall into the temptation of looking back wistfully at the glory days and assuming that the season that we're in now is small or insignificant by comparison. But let's not despise the day of small things. The fact is that the same God who led us through previous seasons is still powerfully at work in this season. The same God who was powerfully at work in previous seasons is still powerfully at work in this season. Amen? As we depend on the Spirit's power to overcome insignificance, we can trust that the eyes of the Lord who range throughout the earth will rejoice when they see us faithfully carrying out the tasks that God has given us. Now, when we look at these as a whole, the power to overcome hardships, the power to overcome weariness, and the power to overcome insignificance, we can see that God is powerfully working through people who were open to being used to accomplish something new. God is going to do something amazing, even if they can't see it yet. You remember that this whole vision of Zechariah 4 centers around a lampstand. And so I want to close today about thinking about the significance of the light that the lampstand bears. We said that the lampstand represents the community, and the community bears the light of God's presence with them. Now think about what a difference light can make in a dark world. In 1995, the SS Lima, a commercial vessel that was steaming offshore from Somalia, found itself sailing into waters that were not the inky black that you'd expect on a moonless night, but they were glowing a ghostly white. It appeared as though they were sailing over a field of snow or gliding over the clouds. Now, glowing seas have been a part of maritime folklore ever since the 1700s, but they had never been scientifically confirmed. A group of scientists had an ingenious idea. 
using the Defense Meteorological Satellite, that's a hard word to say, right? Dr. Stephen Haddock and his team discovered this large luminescent area. Now, it was roughly the size of Connecticut, 110 miles long. And the phenomenon was identified in the exact area where the captain had reported his ship that night. Marine biologists discovered that the glowing seas were caused by these massive swarms of bioluminescent bacteria feeding on large populations of algae. Now imagine that for a moment. Bacteria are microscopic, but when they congregate together, these tiny little creatures that can't even be seen by the naked eye can suddenly radiate their light 600 miles into orbit. Now think about what happens when the light of God's Spirit empowers us to work together to accomplish the work that God has called us to do. Even in the face of hardship, weariness, and the feeling of insignificance, God can work together through our community to shine a powerful light into the world, and Scripture promises that the darkness will not overcome it. Let's pray together. God, we are so grateful that you don't leave us to do your work on our own strength and out of our own resources. God, we can't. We don't have the power and the stamina to do it. And sometimes the work just seems too hard or we feel too weary or we don't see the big picture of what you're up to. God, we're so grateful that this, your spirit can give us the power to accomplish the work that you are calling us to do. So God, give us the vision. Give us the insight into what you are calling each of us to do individually for your kingdom and together as a church in our community and in our world. And Lord, as you give us that vision, give us the hope that your spirit will work through us powerfully to accomplish what you have called us to do. And God, we look forward with great expectation to you using your spirit's power to shine a light through us into our community, a light of hope, a light that promises that you who have called us are faithful and that you will complete it. Lord, we're so grateful for your spirit working powerfully in us and through us. It's in the powerful name of Jesus we pray, amen.